Hey everyone, and welcome to Radically Normal. I'm Michael, one of your co-hosts, and I'm here with Andre. On this episode, called I Would Walk 900 Miles, we talk about bad podcast intros, Nehemiah's conversation with the king, and his call to the Jews to work, as well as their work on the wall. We hope you enjoy this discussion about Nehemiah chapters 2 and 3. Thanks for tuning in. We came to a dilemma today, just because it's been so many days recording. You want to tell us what that is? Yeah, so the dilemma is basically... Is it worth having a bad intro to a podcast episode, or is it worth just diving straight into the book of Nehemiah to study? So, uh, do you do you want to tell us or tell tell everyone what we've been talking about? I mean, I guess we might as well just tell everyone some of the best ideas we've had, or the, right? or the worst. I guess yeah, we could we could also say the worst. I guess the first one we came across was that Michael wanted to give us some hot takes. And I don't really know how the audience is going to feel about any of these, so I was kind of hesitant, but go ahead and tell us. Okay, well, first I just want to say that I just thought nobody's going to log off because, or get off the podcast because of these hot takes, or I, ho- I hope not. But if you agree with my hot takes, then you at least know that you're they're, definitely... They're pretty hot. They're pretty hot. They're pretty hot, but you know that you're in the right place if you agree with these. So my first one would be that as a TV show, The Office is completely overrated. Dude, I don't know how the listeners are going to feel about that. I feel like a lot of people generally like The Office. Um, I guess my hot take would just be that Parks and Rec, not good at all. Office is definitely better than it. So, But I don't know how everyone else is going to feel about that. And the second one might be even more controversial for anyone listening in from Texas. Yeah, if you're from the South, definitely from Texas, this one's going to be really disputed. So my hot take is basically that Whataburger is the most overrated place. The reason being that it's pretty much an average fast food restaurant with a pretty diverse menu. The patty melt's not bad, but, and it has, I will say it has okay food, but it's put on such a shrine in Texas. And it feels like that if governor Abbott had to like install like a official restaurant of Texas, it would be Whataburger. To me, that's not the place. And because everyone hypes it up so much, it's the most overrated. Dude, it's, it's pretty good. Come on now. It's not as good as Cane's, but it's pretty good. Come on. All right. Also, we were discussing talking about sports, maybe TV shows, which nothing's really going on on those two fronts. I guess the biggest news in sports right now is the Michael Jordan documentary. And when it comes to movies and TV shows, only thing really going on is Outer Banks. And Michael hasn't finished that yet, so can't yep. really talk about that either. I'm on episode two. Okay, so I guess the best thing is we decided maybe talk about Zoom and how we feel about that. But I don't know. Zoom... Kind of just, I associate it too much with school, so. See, Zoom, I actually think, and this is thankfully less of a hot take now, so I'm in the safer territory perhaps. I've actually found Zoom to be kind of beneficial. Obviously, it's way better to be in person, but like, for instance, when you're holding a, hosting a Bible study or something, sharing your screen can be really beneficial because I can look at notes and I can show notes and I can see people all at the same time. So Zoom has its, its pluses, and I definitely think it's better than FaceTime. Yeah, you can tell me how more people in easier format you can see more people at a time i think the good thing is that a lot of families are kind of just uniting more and uh talking to people who are in other states or whatever i know definitely that's true for my family so that's pretty good yeah for sure um but just thinking about all the bad intros that we could have gone through i know we were most excited just to start talking about nehemiah so it probably makes the most sense to just jump in right here if you don't have anything else to add yeah uh maybe we should give a little recap from the last episode if you want to start with that yeah so just to recap 
about what we were saying at the beginning of the, the first episode when we covered uh, just our themes in Nehemiah that we both found, and then also just thinking about Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, it's just worth mentioning again that Judah, the people of God in the south, were exiled under the power of Babylon, who was the most powerful at the time. And then as promised in the prophet book of Jeremiah, Persia was used by God to judge Babylon and their sin, and God used Persia to redeem his people. And then, as we see in the book of Ezra, which comes right before Nehemiah in your Bible, God raises up Cyrus, a king in Persia, to let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. So some of these Jews are already in Jerusalem when Nehemiah begins, and in Ezra they rebuilt the temple where God was supposed to dwell among his people. And then now we are in Nehemiah, where the temple's rebuilt, but the wall is missing, and Nehemiah's not in Jerusalem either. So do you want to kind of recap what happened in chapter 1? Yeah, so chapter one, basically where we're at now is that uh, Nehemiah has just spent approximately the past four months praying and planning about the restoration of Jerusalem, which has been put on his heart. And the reason for that is that he found out that um, his people were living in, like, they had no wall around the city. Uh, They were living in poor conditions, poor spiritual conditions. And he's really just praying to God, repenting for himself and for his people, and also recalling a lot of the promises of God. And that's where we get to in chapter two. Yeah, so in chapter 2, as we just look here, one thing that's worth noting, when you read your Bible, you probably read it through as one cohesive narrative, which is really good. But one thing that's interesting is, and I'm not sure how you pronounce this, but it says, in the month of Nisan. Um, Maybe it's pronounced like the car company, maybe it's not. But what's interesting is, since Nehemiah prayed in chapter 1, which uh, Andre just recapped, it's been four months. So we don't know what happened in these four months, but Nehemiah's probably been fasting, praying about whatever God's put on his heart because it's going to come up here and it's going to be obvious what is on his heart. So we can probably assume that Nehemiah has been fasting and praying. But what do you think is important just as we jump into chapter two? I think immediately they recap again what Nehemiah's role is, which we've already kind of gone over, but it reiterates that it just makes me think how important that job really is. Um, Obviously, we talked about how he's a cupbearer, so the king trusts him. His role is to taste test all of the wine and the food. Um, but something also that I was reading about was that his role gives him a lot of influence with the king. And especially in their conversation that we're about to see, um, you can see that the king really like listens to what he has to say and gives him like a big request that Nehemiah give, uh, asked for. So that kind of shows that Nehemiah hasn't really taken advantage of this position that he's in. And it really just shows how um, good of a, of a servant he is to, to the king and how respected he is. Yeah, I think that one thing that really shows that what you just said about him really fulfilling and doing a good job of his role in serving the king as cupbearer is in verse six, the king replies, and we're going to, we're going to look at what Nehemiah talks to the king about, but once he gives his request, the king says, how long will you be gone? When will you return? So the king obviously has some sort of fond feeling towards his cupbearer here. So I think, I think that really is telling too. I just think that if we, I think we should go back and just look at this conversation because there's a lot of good stuff in there, but Basically, if we go back to verse 2, and the king notices that Nehemiah is sad almost immediately, and it says that he even asks if Nehemiah is sick, because Nehemiah typically does not seem sad when he's around the king. So, obviously, he really likes his job. He does a good job, and he's a good servant. Um, He's very well respected, and the king notices that something is wrong, and the king feels bad. And this kind of shows that they have, like, a very good relationship between the two of them. Um, obviously the king trusts him and the king feels sympathy towards him and the king wants to see what he can do to make the situation better. And to me, that just shows the importance of 
um, really just relating to people and showing compassion and having those relationships and how much easier it makes to talk about things that are important to you, whether that be your faith or just really anything. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. I really like, so when the, the king really shows their personal relationship in verse two by asking about his sad face, um, seeing that he's not sick, really being really observant of Nehemiah. But then Nehemiah says, before he even gets into his sadness or the reason he is sad, he says, let the king live forever. So before he is just plain honest about what's going on, he honors the king. And this just this is a this is another example of his uh, service to the king, of his work in captivity away from Jerusalem. Yeah, and it also just it all it kind of just reminds me of the story of Daniel, man. How um, Daniel had very similar characteristics. He was also a good leader. He he worked really hard at his job, and he was also elevated to positions that were important. And you can kind of see like the parallels between the both of them, how they just highlighted God's glory just by working hard and by doing the best in the job that they could possibly do and how that proved to give them responsibilities that help them in in the future. Yeah, for sure. It kind of reminds me of a verse in Colossians. So I'm pretty sure at this point when Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, he's talking about bond servants, but he says in verse 23 of chapter chapter three in Colossians, he says, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Really just showing... Hey, your work is not first for your own benefit. Your work is not first for those people around you. Your work is first for God. So somehow Nehemiah is still working for the Lord here. He's working hard. And as such, as a result of that, he gets the benefit of going to, of getting to go back to Jerusalem, which we're about to get to. And then just looking through this conversation as well as you keep going down, one thing that I noticed, and I guess correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of shows how much planning he put into this, just all the things that he asked. He asked for the timbers. He asked for the king to give him letters to show people that it's really the will of the king that um, Nehemiah goes on this mission. Um, he also just asked, tells him already how long he's going to be gone. Um, he, he gives him a lot of information. You can tell he's really been planning this, and it just shows like how smart he is, um, how obedient to God he is, but also just how organized he is. Yeah, I really like what you said about obedient to God because it shows, and this goes back to chapter one with the prayer, but it shows that he he plans and he, through all of the planning, he's dependent upon God because in verse two, he says, I was very much afraid when the king is asking him about his sad face. But then in verse four, once the king asks what his request is, he says, I prayed to the God of heaven. So he's afraid. He doesn't know how the king might respond when he gives his request. So he immediately prays. So do you think he kind of walked away and prayed or do you think it was more like a quick thing? Like how can we kind of think about praying in this kind of situation nowadays perhaps? I think there's two different instances when I look at it. Um, Chapter one, and even the beginning of chapter two, we see that he's praying and it's a longer period of time and he's putting a lot of planning into this and he's really going, it seems like more like a back, back and forth, longer term thing that he's going through with God. And then later on when he's talking to the king and it says that he prays, I think that's different because I don't really think that he left or went to a different room and just started praying there or anything like that. I think it was more like a quick in his head kind of thing. And it just made me think about like times in my life, I guess, like whether that be like right before a test and just like want to calm my nerves or whatever it is, just like a quick prayer in your head is, can be just as powerful as longer term prayer about something very specific. Um, whether that be building a wall or whether that be um, something much smaller. I don't know. That's, that's kind of my two cents about it. 
Yeah, for sure. I want to give a little bit of a quick plug. And I just want to say, Paul Miller, if you ever listen to this, your book is great. But I like what you said about how he's praying continuously or he's praying in the moment. He's not going off. And Paul Miller wrote this great book called A Praying Life, which I really recommend. But he has a chapter called Crying Abba Continuously. And he says, we don't need self-discipline to pray continuously. We just need to be poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit makes room for his spirit. So what we see here is he's in the middle of a situation and he's still praying. He feels his own inability to do this on his own, but he prays to God for success with the king. He prays to God for uh, deliverance in this moment. Nice plug, dude. And I don't know how you did that. You just pulled a random book off your bookshelf and just opened up to a page and just kind of knew where it was. That was pretty impressive, man. I have to say. But yeah, we. I mean, that that's good uh, commentary there. And I mean, the next thing we go to um, Nehemiah now has the, the green light to go ahead and do this. And it says that the king granted him what he asked and he, that the good graces of God were upon him. And that means that God was looking after him in this whole situation and God wanted this to be successful. And later on, we even see that Nehemiah says that he has, um, the goodwill of the king and of God to the people who he asked for help. So obviously like everything is good to go. And now he has a green line. He's ready to go. Yeah. So then we're going to see that he he gets a, he gets these letters from the king that that he can he can travel to Jerusalem. He gets a letter for wood, which just shows more of his preparation. That he gets the timber in advance, which is going to help with building the wall and building the beams of some of these these gates that we're going to see mentioned in chapter three in a little bit here. And then he but then he begins to travel and he runs into some trouble. So what happens there? We're in we're in close to verse ten if you're following along. So like he he immediately just reached people who who did not believe that the king had actually given, given him the go-ahead to do this. There was also people who were, it says that they were displeased. Um, there was obviously some turmoil just with um, the people in Jerusalem and surrounding uh, people as well that we know. And he, he shows them that everything is in, in that he has all the like letters and things that he needs um, to show that he is doing like what he's supposed to be doing, but still he, he reaches people who like disagree and who are angered by it. And that kind of just shows that, Whenever you're doing a good, even if you're doing a good work, sometimes you, you will reach turmoil from people who disagree and who like, don't like what you're doing, but that doesn't mean you quit. Obviously, it says Nehemiah took a rest for three days, or I guess we're assuming that's a rest for three days, but then he immediately started going to work. And despite not telling people exactly what he was thinking, what was going on at first, he was like thinking about what he was going to do. And he was starting to put his plan into motion. Wait, so let's, let's just take a second here and look at how he got to where he could put his plan in motion. So it says in verse verse 11 in first person Nehemiah is talking. So I went to Jerusalem and was there 3 days. And like Andre said, that's probably 3 days of rest because then he begins to rise in the night and go in secret. But he traveled if we know in chapter 1 that he was in Susa, which was the ancient city of Persia, and then he traveled to Jerusalem, they couldn't even take a direct route, which would have been 750 miles because of the desert landscape. They had to travel approximately 900 miles, and this would have taken at least three months. So when I'm reading this, I'm just kind of thinking, oh, he just went to Jerusalem, kind of like I might go to Target or drive into to Dallas, which from my house is maybe 20 minutes. But what is going on here is he's traveling for such a long time, and that just really shows maybe the dedication to the mission or just the hand of God upon him to get him there safely. I don't really think about that, but I guess if he is, if we are going to assume that he's resting for three days, it must have been a long journey if he's taking that long. I mean, 
I know that, I mean, we drove to Atlanta last time and I remember all the drivers were kind of just resting for a day and I can't imagine just traveling 900 miles or whatever and like resting for, like he must've been super tired. Yeah, well, it probably didn't help that there were no cars 2,500 years ago, so it definitely made it more tiring. Yeah, he was probably just riding a, that camel all the way across the desert or <laughs> wherever it was. So then he gets to Jerusalem, he rests, and then, it, and then he says, I rose in the night with just a few men. I told no one what God had put into my heart, and there was no animal with me but the one on which he rode. So why would he tell nobody? It seemed like God had put this on his heart. He was super passionate about it. Why would he tell nobody? I don't really know, man. I think... I think what's really going on here is he knew that a lot of people were opposing him. And so he didn't, he wanted to wait as long as possible before people found out and before he started just seeking the help so that people wouldn't put try to put a stop to it. So he wouldn't seek as much, so he wouldn't see as much opposition and so that he just did the best thing that he could so that his plan would be successful in the end. Yeah, for sure. And I think commentators will say that the reason that, and we'll see this in chapter four, which should be next episode in Nehemiah, we see that he begins to run into trouble with Sanbala and Tobiah mentioned in verse 10 and, and some others. But a lot of people think that was because of traitors in, in the Jewish circle. So it's probably a good idea, don't you think? I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, I know if I had some kind of plan, I didn't think people were going to agree with. I would definitely not want to tell that many people and also one thing that I saw in one commentary was that sometimes it's just good to keep certain things to yourself and between you and God for a while before you put them into action. And I mean, there could be like many reasons for that that aren't just because people are opposing you, but also maybe it's just you just want to meditate about it first before um, you do anything about it and you just want to seek out God's wisdom, or wh- whether that be looking through the Bible or looking through different like listening to different things about God's word just to see if it's really the right thing that you want to go about doing. Maybe he was doing a little bit of that too. Yeah, for sure. I think he's definitely praying, contemplating, and he's definitely in this time inspecting. So between verses 13 and and 16, he's really inspecting, figuring everything out. And it says in verse 16 that he hadn't told the Jews, the priests, nobles, officials, and the rest who were going to work. But then in verse 17, he goes to them and says, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem's in ruins. So he says, if, if the wall continues to be like this, we're going to be mocked and ridiculed without the wall. And then he doesn't end there. He calls them to this project of honor and restoration. So how do you think that this, this calling would have affected the people when they heard this? I mean, also we know that um, one thing was that the state of the wall paralleled the state of their spirit um, and the state of how they were doing as well as people. And so when he gives them an honorable purpose... He's also saying, let's rebuild this wall to bring glory to our city and bring glory to God. But let's also rise up on this project to bring, like, to restore ourselves, to bring, like, honor back to ourselves and give glory to God through our own lives of what we're going to do. So I think, obviously, there's, like, a, he's kind of, like, double, doing kind of a double um, meaning there to where he wants the wall to be rebuilt, but he also wants their spirits to be rebuilt and their souls to be restored. So I think that's like a big thing of how he gets them to actually want to do this and put so much effort into it. Yeah, for sure. I I totally agree because a lot of Jewish identity and spirit and uh, collective feeling about um, God's work in their midst, in their lives had to do with what is our temple like, which they rebuilt in the book of Ezra. And then now what is our wall like? This displays God's might and glory to the surrounding nations. And it also gives us defense against our enemies. 
And then what's also noteworthy is in verse 18, he says, I told them the hand of my God had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. So he appeals to the word to the words of their two authorities. The Jews pretty much had two authorities, you could say. King Artaxerxes in Persia, who oversaw all of this land, and then also God, who would be the God of their forefathers, the God of Moses, um, the God of David and Solomon. So he appeals to these two authorities to say, hey, they're both supportive of this. So he's not bringing them into more trouble or anything. And then next thing you know, not only are people opposing them, but now it says that people are making fun of them. And so he just reaches another um, wall that he needs to go around which is that now people are even now that even that they know that the king is is for this, they still want to like make fun of him and give him more even more opposition. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, so in Andre's talking about verse nineteen here with with more opposition, and what's interesting is they say, "What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" So just a little bit of of connection here to Ezra. In Ezra four, this had come up because. Um, the, the king had been persuaded here to not let the Jews rebuild the wall because there had been a point about rebellion. So now Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, or however you say it, are basically re- referring back to that, saying, are you rebelling against the king? This is the same thing that's already happened. This is what we talked about in Ezra. And so here we see them appealing to that and them jeering at them, despising them, because they didn't expect much of the Jews. But then we have verse 20, which I think is just an awesome verse. What... What do you have here from uh, verse 20 on what Nehemiah replies? And then, okay, so in verse 20, Nehemiah tells everyone that he knows that God's going to make them prosper. And this obviously is going to give them a lot of confidence, and it just rallies everyone up to want to go and help him. And Nehemiah is identifying that he can't rebuild this wall on his own, obviously. He needs everyone else to help him. And so all of these calls to action, and now telling them that he knows that God is on their side, it's really just encouraging everyone to, as it says, um, he's telling them that they're going to rise and they're going to build and they're going to prosper and they're going to restore the wall and they're going to restore the land. So obviously this is like really helping them out to want to like want to join the cause. Yeah, I definitely think it's helping them do that. And and what's really interesting is Nehemiah and it, it's probable that he's been writing a bit of this since he's talking in first person or the chronicler is doing some work here when we talked from when we talked about the authorship. But what's interesting is they're not including just the good parts of the story. They're including the opposition. They're including the bad parts, the hard parts. And we're going to see more of that in chapter four and beyond in the book. But after he says this in verse 20, which is saying the God of heaven is going to make us prosper. And then he, and then he says, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem saying you have no legal share here. There's no mention of scorning after he appeals to the name of God, just showing the power of the God of Israel and the hand he had among his people. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's all that I have for, chapter two. Um, I don't know. Do you have any last few points you want to give about chapter two before we move on to chapter three? No, that's all I have about chapter two. I just really think that, uh, the charge in chapter 20 or in chapter two, verse 20 about God making them prosper and him responding to the opposition really set the tone in the spirit for chapter three, where commentators will say, it appears that the work pretty much begins immediately. And verse 18 of chapter two says they strengthen their hands for the good work. And then in chapter three, they begin working, and it starts with Eliashib, the high priest, who essentially is mentioned first, and he's the most important name in the story, and he's actually the grandson of Jeshua, who was the high priest in the book of Ezra in the time of Zerubbabel. So now, so now we're moving into chapter 3 was the last thing um, Mike was talking about, and I guess all of chapter 3 gives a lot of historical references of the people, 
Um, it gives us a lot of information of some of who was involved, what houses were involved. And I mean, from my perspective, I mean, I know this isn't something we should just skip over, obviously, but there's a lot of gates going on here. Um, there's some information about um, consecrating some stuff. And I don't and I don't really know what you think about all this stuff, but kind of what's your what's your opinion about what we should take out of this whole chapter? I know this one's going to be a little bit faster just because there's not too much story going on. But yeah, there, there's a couple things. I think one of the things that I'd say to anyone listening is if you're looking at a chapter like this, whether it's a genealogy and you're not familiar with a lot of the names or it has to do with the, a lot of details about rebuilding the wall here in chapter three. I wouldn't skip over, but try to learn as much as you can. So here they're rebuilding this wall around a city. And this is in one of my commentaries, so it's super helpful. But look up a picture of this wall. Find a detailed picture so when you're reading along, you can see where these different gates are. You can see where this tower of the hundred is or um, the fish gate or the sheep gate mentioned in verse one and back again in verse 32 at the end here. But try to learn as much as you can and try to like place yourself in the story. Try to be able to visualize it. You might be able to picture um, King Artaxerxes conversation with Nehemiah in chapter two. Same thing. It's so helpful if we can place ourselves in the story and really um, imagine what is happening here. Yeah. And then obviously I know you want to give a little bit of connection about um, how verse 1 and verse 32 really tie in together and kind of just show how it goes full circle of what's going on. Um, and so that that was kind of something I didn't really pick up on the first time reading, but it is it is true that it goes back full circle. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not exactly sure all of the significance of the sheep gate, which is the gate mentioned in verse 1 and 32, except that it was really close to the temple. So if you look up a diagram, you'll see or a picture of the wall or a redepiction of what everyone and what scholars think about it. The sheep gate was placed really close to the temple that they just rebuilt. Um, but there is one more thing that's really interesting, and it's more interesting in the fact of, you know, how is their culture different than ours? So it's interesting to think about the 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 primary three groups mentioned as workers, which were goldsmiths, perfumers, and merchants or businessmen. However, people that delivered food or uh, made pottery, such as bakers and potters, essential then, they go unmentioned. It's not because they weren't important to the project. It's that they were unable to work on the wall. They had to, they, they were preoccupied making bread, doing things that were essential to the city, so they couldn't leave their job to do these things. And then it's interesting, the people that are goldsmiths or merchants, who we might think are central to the middle class in a city or central to the operations of the economy, they're the ones that are getting to work on the wall. And just one other thing, we don't think that this is a complete list of what's going on, but just probably an overall picture of the work being done um, on the wall. And it's interesting to note that the wall's not done here. So when we introduced Nehemiah, we said that they're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Nehemiah building the wall. The wall's not finished until the end of chapter six. So we have a ways to go here working on the wall, but we're going to see them run into opposition and into some other things. I think that's a pretty good overview of these two chapters. Um, that's all I got. I think that's all you got too. So I guess this is a good time to sign off on the podcast for today and keep working on the next episode. Yeah, sounds good. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for tuning in and maybe we'll be back soon with another hot take. <laughs>